0: Alrighty. Welcome back, everyone, to um, uh, podcast number three of uh, The World Around Us. Um, I'm joined today by uh, my co-host, Sahasha. How are you going, sir? I'm going pretty good. Good. Bit of a later start today. Yeah. Have you enjoyed your sleeping? Uh, maybe. maybe <laughs> and we are also um, joined today, very uh, luckily, by um, the Associate Professor, um, Helen Johnston from the University of Sydney. Helen, thank you for joining
1: You're
0: us. You're welcome. <laughs> so, we were um we were meant to start earlier and then helen was gracious enough to let us come back later so in her busy schedule now i know helen from uh first year physics she was my unit coordinator um, and she taught the module on on quantum mechanics of first year um which was my first real exposure to the quantum world at a university level um and she also does i believe third year
1: That's
0: right, I teach astrophysics to third year. Okay, astrophysics to third year. So Mm -hmm. she's very uh, involved in the uh, upcoming university students' physics kind of um, trajectory, Um, and she's an awesome character. So um, we're going to learn a little bit more about her today and what she does. Um, And to start off with, I'd love to ask how you got into science in the first place. Were you always brought up in that scenario, or did you grow towards it?
1: Yeah, I'm one of those really irritating people who knew right from day one that I wanted to be a scientist. In fact, I, uh, at the age of six, I wanted to be a paleontologist, like most kids. But then, by the age of seven, I decided I was going to be an astronomer. I have no idea why. Just it was just I just remember the 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 certainty in my mind that that's what I wanted to do, and I basically never changed my mind. Um, But what you have to realize is that that has absolutely no bearing on your on your future outcomes if you know what i mean i also have uh, very many dear friends who literally did not decide until they were selecting their postgraduate studies what field they wanted to get into and they are just as successful as those of us who um, started (laughs) who decided really early so it really isn't a case of um that you know if you didn't decide at the age of five you're a total failure no no no. (laughs) that's really not the way it works at all it just so happened that um i'm one of those really stubborn people who did decide really early
0: (laughs) yeah I, i never i never decided like I didn't even, I didn't think I remotely thought of science or cared about science or anything at a young age, but as I kind of grew and developed, I kind of, is that the same for you? Uh, For me, I I was always interested in, you know, medicine and uh, I think I'm similar to Helen that I was always wanting to be a doctor and learn more about the body and how to treat disease. When you were seven, you were thinking like that. Uh, maybe not seven, but I was always fascinated by the world around me. So that's probably yeah one of the indications that meant I like science
1: yeah, at not, an early yeah. age. I think
0: it was like the lack of exposure for me. Like I was never, I wasn't brought up in um, like my parents are not um, academics, um, so it wasn't like kind of thrust upon me. And I wasn't really. I grew up in the northern beaches of Sydney, so we don't really. It's a little bit of surf culture so a lot of it's just about that and we don't really think about the science or anything so i was never really exposed to it in that way or even had like the sci-fi wasn't really into those movies and stuff i didn't really have any source of encouragement but then i think that level of like um unbeknownst um to me the world that i had previously uncovered when it was first exposed to me i just wanted to know more and more and it's developed into this like pursuit of do you remember
1: what what it was that that sparked your?
0: That's a great question. <laughs> I, I I, think it was, I took, I decided to take physics because I wanted to, I felt so, my brother did really well in his HOC exams. He got 99.9, 9, whatever, I'll shout out to him, he's probably listening. Um, and I always felt somewhat, in not inferior to him, I don't want to make it like it was a competition, but I always felt like there was something that I couldn't do was succeed in education because I really did poorly throughout school because... Like in, in maths, I would think it was stupid and i just, you know, I just had that mentality. But I I went back. I actually had a year off from school to try and re re-evaluate what I wanted to do with myself. And then I, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back and test myself. And I took chemistry, physics, advanced maths, biology, every science. And I'm like, I'm going to put myself to the test. And I ended up doing really well. at that. So it was like a competitive, I don't know. I don't know so it's pretty crazy now that's how you got into science what about how you chose to specialize in astronomy after you maybe got into uni or how that kind of played out
1: yeah so i mean again i kind of always knew i wanted to um get into astronomy and so i took the opportunity of doing every astronomy course or you know related thing that came that came along the way and i um i actually sort of um, barged my way in and got myself a student um, research position out at the Anglo-Australian Observatory, as it then was, oh. basically rocked up and said, "You know, can I? You know, can can I work with you to do some stuff?" So that's that's the level at which I kind of knew what I wanted to do, um, and uh, and then I got to. You know, so I finished my undergraduate degree here in Sydney and decided I wanted to go to America to do my PhD mm. um, and so applied to a bunch of places. And um, you know, much to my surprise, got accepted at, at, at all of them. This was in, back. back uh, the, I mean, Australian students are really very well regarded. We get a good grounding really? in, in physics around the world. Yes. Um, oh. it's, it's, um, oh, so really <laughs> all all think all right. of, I, I'm of I'm course, it. Of course, it might not be the right era of the world to be thinking about yeah, traveling of course but if life gets back to normal then yeah it's it's a really fantastic idea anyway so i i um went to america and then uh and then i had the experience that a lot of people have which is i have this idea i wanted to do astronomy you know the, the noble person looking you out know, towards you. the stars but then it comes down to you need an actual you know project you know yeah, what exactly do you work on and so i did the obvious thing and said, oh, I'll just keep doing something similar to what I was doing before, you know, for my honours projects here right. at city University. And then it turned out it wasn't very much fun. And yeah. so I scrambled round and found someone to work with. So it wasn't really a choice so much as just, I fell into a project yeah. uh, having sort of knocked one back and just fell in love with it. Absolutely, this was, um, it turned out to exactly suit the sort of what I'm good at, which is, you know, not big picture stuff, you know airy fairy yeah, yeah, um, yeah. philosophical imaginings no 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 this is working with actual data you uh, know yeah. photons watching them as they come in and and yeah. and really trying trying to interpret what's going on and so i'm really pleased that yeah i got that opportunity to 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 it's a case of finding your own skill set. As I say, a lot of us go in thinking, oh, yes, I want to do quantum gravity or, yeah. or you no, know, no, or, or, or whatever. No, 100%, 100%. And, and, um, yeah, yeah. exactly. Everyone says, what are you holes? Yeah, all fun <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, that, there are the buzzwords. And I get it. That's the stuff that's really fun when you read it in Scientific American and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, you say, oh, yeah, cosmology. You know, I want to work out how the universe began and all the rest of it. Yeah. What people don't understand is when you study cosmology as an observer, you spend your whole life studying faint fuzzy, fuzzy blobs. It's like you know, and the point is, they're always faint because if you get a bigger telescope, you just go further back, yeah. which means they're still faint fuzzy blobs, yeah. So you never yeah. actually get to see anything proper, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and who knew that when you when you go into things? Do you know what I mean? Whereas, yeah. if you're sensible, and study stars in our galaxies, like binary stars, then there's you actual the information, information around. Yeah. That's right. You can collect enough data that you can actually say it's something interesting. Research. Yeah. And so it turns out I did end up with black holes, just not the theory of black holes and, and, and Einstein and stuff. It's more, let's measure these things. And that's, you know, that's, yeah. That's, that's, like, that's more, really yeah, that's
0: more influential, yeah. arguably, because yeah. everyone, I mean, I know I, like, I always think about, you know, Unifying gravity, and quantum mechanics. It's like, oh, of course, it'd be this amazing thing, but in, t- in terms of practicality, we're living in a living in a society where you need a job which is practical and allows you something. The last thing I would want to do is become a science who scientist, not become a science, become a scientist who works kind of inconclusively on a theory which is enjoyable to think about, like the many worlds theorem yeah. or this black hole, white hole, you know, time travel stuff. And never really ha- have made any definitive inroads in the progression of science. I'd rather, <laughs> as you said, have like actual physical data, yeah. be able to see what I'm working with. Yeah. And, you know, have that satisfaction. Yeah.
1: And don't get me wrong, some people love the whole philosophical oh, approach yeah. to this and you know, as you say, let's think about multi worlds. But turns out that certainly my mindset is very much you know if I can't actually make a prediction and get a measurement out of this theory then Mm. what's the point you know what I mean whereas you tell me there might be a black hole out there that I could actually point a telescope at that's that's exciting that's that's the, the sort of thing that that yeah That's the essence of science,
0: isn't it? Like having an idea and then being able to verify it with experimental data. And I I can't imagine working for so long. A lot of the theoreticians who hopefully I was speaking to Helen earlier and hopefully we get a few of the particle physicists or theoretical physicists on to be able to speak about these things. But to work on an idea which may be just impractical as turned for the level of advancements of technology at the moment. Like I was speaking to um, Professor Tim Bedding from um, podcast number one um, and we're just speaking about the limited number of resources and how we have some people with these brilliant ideas in physics and theoretical physics, um, physics, but no real experimental way of recreating <laughs> them. So they could have an idea equally as influential as Einstein and Newton, and they're living in our times, but yeah. they don't get their recognition because technology is not there yet. Yeah. So there is this discrepancy between living in the present and utilizing the technology and maybe doing work that's not this ridiculous mm-hmm. notions, but getting work done yeah. ultimately. So what um, uni did you go to in America? So
1: I went to Caltech, which oh. is in, um, in the California, famous Caltech. Right, the famous Caltech, <laughs> which I like to describe as a fantastic place to have been. <laughs> That's right. right. Okay. It's, it's extremely high pressure. Really? The number of students who got all sorts of weird diseases and things, just, I swear it was just from the stress is, um, is, Um, really quite high but as i say but the experience is astonishing of course um you know so that imposes high level yeah as i say it's that's serious stress yes the expectations put on you you know when you go there and you know we're in a situation, you know, you're good at physics, you know, you're in the top couple in your class and, then, yeah. and it's all good. And then you get there and everybody, you know, you look around and you see the professors who are two years older than you, full professors and, yeah. right, and right you know, um, and, and doing this amazing work. And you kind of sit there going, I shouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, know so, exactly. yeah, so, you know, but, but no, it was, it was, Excellent grounding for, yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. For, and a fantastic Foundation. opportunity, of course, for for, for what, what yeah, do in the future, the future. Exactly yeah, right. but
0: yeah. yeah, I guess you don't go there to be a mediocre physics student. Well,
1: no, that, exactly. That's you go right. there to push yeah. yourself,
0: and I guess. Yeah. That.
1: But I would say, um, I think more Australian students than do should think about changing universities, going overseas, mm. or something. Um, doing it when you're young is the right time to do it. Um, you don't have any family ties or you know anything yeah. um you know that's keeping you here and just do it, you know it's it's scary, it's scary as all hell. so yeah. you know i'm I'm gonna you know leave these shores and you know go and do I know not wash over in in some strange land. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an extremely um yeah, it's it's just a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, next best thing is to do the exchange thing and do it just for one year. But,
0: yeah, yeah, exchange but, is always
1: on offer. Yeah, exchange is, and I would highly recommend that anybody who gets a chance to do that just really should. Mm. You don't know what, what you're like until you've Experience separated yourself that. from all the stuff that's all around all the time. Do you know what I mean? And then you go and live somewhere else with completely new people, sometimes a completely new language, you know, new new everything. And yeah, yeah. you find out stuff about yourself as much as anything else. And it's, uh. It's, it's it's yeah
0: <laughs> did you, so you went at the end of your honors year you that's just, right so you did a yes. three or four year yeah. bachelor that's right four year degree
1: here at sydney and, and then, then I, did
0: that include honors that included honors okay. yes yes and then you went straight after and then that
1: went straight after that yes and i was I did the funny thing of uh, of course our academic years are out of sync um, yeah. because oh, they start in they, september and we finish in december you know and so usually most australians will say okay i'll just take six months off and you know wait till the end of their summer but again i was just one of those weird people and i wrote to them said look do you mind if i just come late <laughs> You right, know. Okay. and so I, I did i started in january immediately after finishing my hours again yeah. maybe that wasn't so sensible it might have been a good idea to take a bit of a break yeah, <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> but um mm-hmm. but now i i rocked out you know left australia on the 2nd of january um, you know literally just after finishing my thing and rocked up in pasadena and got to the department and found. Nobody was there because they were all off at the um, annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society just down the road. So I toddled off down and, and sort of, you know, introduced myself. Hi. And that was the start so, of everything. That <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it was a, uh, yeah.
0: because I remember mean, my brother just finished up his honors project, or oh, recently he did in neuroscience, and um, I just remember afterwards he's like he needed a break. It yeah. Was crazy. It was like sixty-five pages yeah. of long, tedious content, <laughs> and by the end of it, he was just run down. So you were a keen young scientist. Yeah, as
1: I say, just... there are other words, you know, like stupid, but <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, so now um, at the moment, your research, we were discussing earlier that there's always fluctuations um, as a t- as a scientist, and you have periods of really exciting research that you've yes. got data for <laughs> and you can go for. It. Again, it c- comes back to that... Um, that idea of the amount of information that's utilisable and present there for you to be able to then interpret as a scientist. Um, But um, there's fluctuations where you're excited about work and then you're not excited about the work, but it's ultimately work at the end of the day. So do you have any... What what kind of research do you specialise in? And maybe you could provide an example of some sort of a previous um research project that you had and, and you're excited about yeah sure, sure
1: and 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 again I, I have to preface this by saying it's not just you know highs and lows of enthusiasm there are a lot more mundane things that get in the way of people's research like having a job yeah. <laughs> things like that i'm, I'm quite serious you know to work. Um, well just you know the availability of, of 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 you know you've got to have a, a, a job in order to be able to do research and yeah. you know i know that sounds um, a strange way of saying it but it is true and the um, reality of today's funding is that there aren't very many jobs in a field like astronomy you know and so a lot of people will work really hard and get a phd and maybe get a postdoc or so and then find at the end of it that there just aren't any jobs to go into and that's that's a, a sad reality of yeah. today of today's life and so you know so so take me for instance right I had a whole series of short-term, Um, research positions, and eventually got a a, a position that um, concentrates on teaching, right? So I'm I'm now spending most of my time teaching physics. You know, that's not what I aimed to do. I aimed to be a completely research astronomer, but, you know, it's not the way it happened. But I'm fine with that, right? You know, sometimes life um, changes, and I'm just happy that I at least get still to do some astronomical research, which is so that sort of keeps me happy um, while I spend the rest of my time. So
0: do do people, teaching. Do you, rely, you rely on the funding for your own research, but then you're under a, a level of employment by the university for exactly. the teaching role, but exactly. then any additional stuff is funding dependent.
1: Well, so, um, so um, it turns out that astronomy actually, the sort of research I do, doesn't actually need very much in the way of external funding. We're very lucky here in Australia that we don't have to, for instance, pay for um, observatory trips. Right. If you get if um, the way that you get data as an astronomer is you apply to a, a telescope and you say, I would like to use your telescope for four nights to do yeah. this sort of science. And this is the sort of measurements I will take. And, you know, this is what I expect to get out of it. Right? Exactly. Kilo. It's not it's, as I say, you're, it's, it's an application. Okay. Right. And they get all these applications. And some telescopes are oversubscribed by a factor of four or five to, to one. So only 20 percent of all proposals. Actually, get given the time oh, yeah, they ask for. Yeah, a
0: proposal, then they, yeah.
1: Yes, and then they judge them, okay. and then they say, okay, we've judged the best ones, and we've allocated this time. And so they say, so you, you're going on, you know, June 13th to 16th, and you say, excellent, writing my diary. Right? Yeah. And on June 13th to 16th, you go to the telescope. You get the telescope is then yours for four nights, yeah. and you t- do whatever it is you promised you'd do, and then you bring that data back, and that's what you spend the next few months working on, you see. So that's the way astronomical research works. As I say, we're lucky in Australia that we don't have to pay for that telescope time. Um, So when we apply to an Australian telescope or as it happens to the big European telescopes, if you are given time, you're also given funding to do the observations, which is great, which means that someone like me who doesn't have independent research funding can still use the telescope, right? right? So I have a salary, I have a job, but I don't actually have grants that allow me to pay to go to a telescope. Yeah. Luckily, I don't have to, okay? Um, yeah, exactly. So as I say, that's the, the, the terrific way that we've got it set up in this country. It's not true in some other countries, like in the US, for instance, right. where you will actually have to, you know, basically you have to have research funding from other sources just so you can travel to get your own data, right? right. Um, um, what's more, you often have to pay to publish that data in scientific journals, and that. So yeah, as I say, so yeah. the, the the world of science yeah. is a yeah. peculiar you know, that's funding that's model.
0: <laughs> very you know, backwards in terms of science and medicine, especially. I know people pay thousands for a bile of insulin, just you know yeah. for one month supply.
1: Yeah,
0: it's it's really. Exactly, poor. I'm just surprised yeah. that the American universities, which are meant to be so much more prestigious and yep. scientifically orientated are actually in a worse position than some, you know, <laughs> small unis in Australia who yeah. might not have as much, you know. As I say,
1: very, very different funding models, you know. So what it mm-hmm. means is that if you're working in a place like America, you have to line up a whole lot of funding in right. advance, knowing you're going to have to spend it on on doing your job. Do you think where that?
0: like this high, really high level of academia comes from in America, knowing that if you do get a job, you're going to be very much dependent on on yourself and you have to be really proficient it's, it in is cutthroat
1: yes um it's also true that it, there's a very notable difference there are differences in the overall research culture if you know what i mean and so very famously um at least in some some fields of astronomy in america um, there is literal theft of people's ideas you know oh, right. <laughs> you know oh, right. people will go to a telescope and instead of observing what they said they would observe, they would observe something they heard on the grapevine that someone else was planning to do, do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, um, so serious, you know, um, major competition going on there, whereas it's... And, and again, these, these are all terrible stereotypes, but nonetheless true. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, the, the, the stereotype in, uh, of in European astronomy is that if there are competitors who are working on what you want to do, you just invite them all to, all to become part of the same team, and so teams get very large very fast. In yeah, okay. um, and that has problems of its own, of course, because it's hard to get things done if you've got. 27 collaborators and that so wow. yeah so anyway um back to my research, yes, research. Yes. so as i say uh, what with the funny situation i mean um for the last few years i definitely haven't been working in big teams i've ended, ended up specializing in this tiny little subfield off on my own being perfectly happy about it. Um, so basically um for the last umpteen years i've been mostly working on these binary star systems called x-ray binaries yes. which are exciting because they contain either a neutron star or a black hole which has matter spiralling down into it. Um, and as it does so, it produces all this um, exotic radiation like X-rays, and that's how we find them. But what I do is I use these optical telescopes, like the one out at kunabarabran to study them, to work out basically the physics of the system, if you're not a yeah. And yeah, and so for the last few years, my favourite, I, I have, everybody has pet objects in the universe. Well, my pet object is a, is a beautiful binary called Circinus X1. Um, and there's a lot we don't know about it because it's um, it's yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And, and that's mm-hmm. why you, you, you do you get kind of you, know, you, you get fond of these things, yeah, right? That it's a, that's right. It's a slightly peculiar object. Um, we know it's a neutron star. We thought for a while it might have been a black hole. Uh, we now know it's a neutron star, but it's it's peculiar. And the more I look at it, the more I think it's because actually it's probably a very young system. That in right. fact this supernova explosion might have only happened five thousand years ago which is a blink of the eye in the life yeah. of star and so as i say, we're not sure yet but um i've got all this nice data that i've been taking for the last few years and i really need to get back to it <laughs> to find out what's going on right. i got a little bit stuck last time i was analyzing this and uh, right. as i say what what you need in science is a little bit of clear time to, yeah. to think you teaching, know, that's right that's right and... and so during semester especially what with online teaching happening and everything. Yeah. I just haven't had headspace. Yeah. And people um, like us interrupting you. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, but talking about astronomy is always good. <laughs> okay. That's right. So, talking about mid semester tests, not so yeah, much. Right, yeah, right, exactly. So
0: you say that there was the trouble in identifying if it was a neutron star or a black yes. hole. In my mind, after doing a little bit of we've done a little bit of stuff on neutron stars and, and pretty much neutron stars and, and black holes from from what I remember are Kind of the stellar remnants of the consequence of a supernova, and when the star that's exploded in a supernova um, collapses, if its if its mass is large enough, I think it's like something like eight times the mass of the sun or greater. Yep. Um, the the actual um, pressure, um, uh, well, what what is it? I need to think again. <laughs> so when the star when the star collapses on itself, uh, because you know, we we spoke about with um, with Tim Bedding about the outward hydrostatic force of the fusion reactions. And when that stops because of the fusion of iron in the core, get the collapse. And if the mass is big enough, it will, Force is it electrons and protons into neutrons, and then exactly. that be- that yeah. becomes that comprises the dense core of these objects, yes. and then they can further collapse into a black hole. Yes, but the intermediary is the neutron star, which yes. which is just neutron comprised. Is that the idea?
1: That's an excellent summary. Absolutely, yes. well done. Good. Yeah. Full marks. <laughs> exactly. Full marks. In astrophysics. So. Well done. <laughs> no, no. That's right. Yes. No. That, that's that. That that's that's exactly it. that's right. So that, so that, that's right. Some so massive stars will collapse to become a neutron star, but if they're more massive than that. And we don't exactly know what that limit is. Then even a neutron star is not basically strong enough to hold up against the self-gravity of the collapsing object, and it collapsed. And we don't know of anything beyond a neutron star that's not a black hole. If you understand, you know, some people have said maybe well, there are quark stars. Could we tell the difference between a neutron star and a quark star? Is even another question. But you know, so anyway. But yes, we, to, to our knowledge, we've got neutron stars, and if you if the neutron star basically um, crumbles if you like if it starts collapsing then there's nothing left that is going to hold it up and that's then it turns into a black hole yeah
0: so is a neutron star so you when you were trying to identify if it was a black hole or a neutron star my idea is that a neutron star still obviously a black hole has no light coming from it so we can't actually visually see it but i would think that it would be an easy identification because the neutron star still produces light that I'm, I'm sure I'm pretty yeah.
1: sure it doesn't well again you're you're right that's the that is in fact the only key difference in some sense yeah. a neutron star has a surface right. and well, a black hole doesn't right? right so yeah. a neutron star is a ball of of neutrons there is an actual surface there which means it can radiate okay yeah. right whereas as you say a black hole does not radiate the problem we have is that a neutron star is only three kilometers across yeah. it is i mean you know that's
0: for that yeah, about. that's
1: t- I mean, r- ridiculously small, and the nearest such um, system that we know about is on the order of a kiloparsec away, which is uh, three thousand right. light years. It's okay, it, it's right. We cannot actually resolve a neutron star, right? So we have to look for, as I said, this is this is where you start getting the problems, right? So you mm-hmm. so you start to look for other hints that it's a neutron star instead of a black hole, right? The other problem we have is that both of them have this gas that's swirling around and falling into it. It's actually that that dominates the light. So even if there was a faint amount of light, remember that, you know, um, the Stefan Boltzmann law, right? The amount of light goes like, um, you know, the, the surface area, that basically the smaller the area, the less light you get out, no matter what the temperature, <laughs> not very much area, which yeah. means you're not getting very much light out. And it's completely washed out by all the other exciting stuff that's happening yeah. in the system. OK, so as it happens, um, this particular my particular binary, Sersinus X1, back in the 1970s, sorry, yeah, 1980s, on two occasions just twice in the last 50 years it actually had this flash of x-rays um, that has this very characteristic and an enormously sharp spike and then a little exponential decline on the on a, a time scale of, a, of of a few of about a minute okay um, that has been um, we interpret as a thermonuclear explosion on the surface of something. Basically, it's oh, it's the smoking that, gun the that it's a neutron star. The problem is most neutron stars that have these flashes do it all the time. They'll have one flash here and then you wait a year and there'll be another flash, right? Okay. So this one is odd. It literally only flashed basically on sort of two adjacent occasions in the 1980s, right? Then about five years ago, it finally flashed again, (laughs) right? And so it's like, okay, that's good, but... What's going on in the middle? Was it not a neutron star in the middle? Kind of sounds unlikely. So then you have to start thinking, well, okay, what else? This is where the whole detective story comes in. This is why I'm so fond of this binary. It's not behaving, it's not obeying any of the rules you see. So yeah, so we're trying to think of a scenario as to why, You know, is it to do with exactly how the gas is falling onto the neutron star? Maybe if you don't build up enough hydrogen on the surface, then you don't get this explosion, you know? But we do see some matter falling in. So anyway, it's, it's, it's good fun. So as I say, but and we've got time. You know, the binary is going to be there for thousands of years. Yeah, so yeah. It's not going yeah. anywhere, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um.
0: I'm just trying to think. If we have like some sort of a telescope that we're using to observe these X-ray yes. spikes, then are the, are the actual, the interpretation of the light, is that completely dependent on that kind of small x-ray, x-ray excitation being directed exactly towards us. Could there be these the, the x-rays going in other directions of space, but we're in the getting... The only time it hits us in the, that period of five years is just because it's managed to hit our line of directories?
1: Absolutely. So well you just... done, you. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and neutron stars are very classically the sorts of things that we know for instance, only send radio beams in one direction. Yeah, and you could certainly imagine that maybe the x-rays do the same thing, you know, and when it happens to be pointed at us, we see it. And then if the pole sort of wanders somewhere else, and then as you say, it would be like it stopped working, but it's just not pointed at us, you see, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So it Could just be a case of could, could, chance could that it yep. hasn't been directed could towards. Be. Us.
1: Absolutely, and we've got to keep all these, and 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 that's why sometimes you feel like you know, You've got to keep all these these parallel threads of what could possibly be going on. You know what yeah. I mean? And you don't want to rule anything Way out yet, you know. Um, but every now and then, something that comes along and says, "Okay, that one's definitely ruled out." You know, we can forget about that branch of the of the possibles. You know, okay. and sometimes, like I say, when we got the got the um the the, the X ray bursts. That suddenly sort of strengthens this little pathway, and they go, "Okay, we'll concentrate a little bit more in that direction." You know, things like that. Oh, yeah, that's right. yeah. It seems like
0: there's so much information yeah. for you to go. And just...
1: Yeah, and, and you've got to. And it's it's another funny one because everyone is human, and when you start a project like this, you often end up with a theory that's your favorite theory. You know, right. you're not supposed to, to, to have favorites, reality. but that's right. And you kind of think, well, it's kind of got to be that, yeah. and. you've got to be a little bit careful that you don't interpret the evidence more favourably because it's in the the one you want it to be true. You know what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, you do see it it occasionally, um, uh, um, especially in early days of a field where everything's open, you know Mm. what I mean? And so, for instance, I did some work in... um, You often find these binaries in globular clusters. Globular clusters are these very old... Uh, sort of compact collections of stars, like a million stars, all just swarming around like a swarm of bees, you see. Um, they've been known since the 1970s that they have, uh, that, uh, that a, a disproportionate number of them have bright X-ray sources in the middle. You see, we now think they're X-ray binaries, right? And the reason is because actually binaries get, um, get created just because there are so many stars around, you see. Anyway, but in the early days, you um, One perfectly natural hypothesis was that it was a black hole sitting in the middle of a globular cluster. You know, it's a big collection of stars. Why wouldn't the middle of it have collapsed, you know? And so, you know, people would say, well, okay, let's assume that every globular cluster has say a 10,000 solar mass black hole in the middle of it, you see, and then, you know, eventually observations come along which kind of rule that out. So you say, okay, so it must be only a 1,000 solar mass black hole, you know, and then a little bit later we're down to, well, it could be a hundred you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah. there does come a time where you kind of maybe got to say, maybe let's just leave the black hole aside for a while, right, and and think about what else it could be. You know want, it to be, yeah, you want it to be a black hole because it's interesting. That's yeah. right, but um you do have to be careful that it being interesting doesn't make it true. Yeah, <laughs> no, right,
0: don't be, you know, your own...
1: Exactly, you know, um, ideas are great, but um, the humility to say, I might have just spent five years of my life on the wrong theory you know, yeah, yeah, right, is, yeah. is, is something that's, yeah. yeah. And I, but can I say, this is another advantage, major advantage of being an, an, of an observational astronomer, because my observations are correct, whether or not my theory is correct, if <laughs> you understand, <laughs> provided I've done them properly, if you know what I mean, I can actually be completely wrong about what I think is going on, and someone can still come back later, reinterpret them in, in a better way, but I've still contributed, do you know what I mean? Right. Whereas it's always struck me that if you're a theorist who comes up with ideas and your idea is just out and out wrong. Completely wrong. That's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But as I say, my biases are showing that I'm not a theorist at heart. <laughs> yeah. well, that's,
0: yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 And when we were talking about like the neutron stars and we've done a little bit. Um, in in I think it was even high school physics when we spoke about did we speak we spoke about neutron stars and and rotation and pole and stuff I think in so. high school physics yeah so what I the idea that I have in my head is that when you have a um, a star um, it's for example the the sun is rotating a, at a particular rate and if you have a picture of another star which is much bigger than the sun when it collapses I think it's just by the um, the law of inertia. And, um, in first year mechanics, we got taught this is, um, if you reduce your effective radius, yep. your rotation rate becomes a lot That's faster. Right. Simple conservation of angular momentum. So yeah. in the case, when we have this transition of a big star to a neutron star, yep. they have lost all this mass and their radius has become infinitely smaller. Yes. So their rotation rate in terms of this conservation of angular momentum, which we see is actually is valid even at the interplanetary level. Yep. Um, these neutron stars that you're talking about must be rotating at a ridiculous rate. Exactly. How do you account for, well, one, how do you account for that rotation rate? How would you go about calculating like how fast it's rotating? Is there a way that you're interpreting the light or is there a way to determine that? That's
1: actually easy because that's exactly what a pulsar is, right? A pulsar is a neutron star that's rotating fast that happens to have a beam of, ra- of yes, radio waves exactly. pointed at us. Now, exactly why it's doing that is slightly complicated, but it's to do with the fact that there's, it's got its own magnetic field. And so particles mostly stream along the thing between the two poles, but the, they can stream directly outwards from the poles. So it's like having a torch that only shines along the direction of the poles. OK, and so the thing is, as it, if the, rot- the angle of that magnetic field is not aligned with the rotation axis, right? Then, as it, as the star rotates around its rotation axis, that magnetic field sweeps around the sky, and it's like a lighthouse. Okay, so it um, and only if it happens to point in your direction do you see it. And of course, it always points at you exactly once per rotation period. So it's like easy. You know, what's the rotation period thing? Well, let's just time it. Right, boom, boom, boom. There you go. Right. So in fact, that's the the, the one thing we know with to great, great precision about a lot of neutron stars, is their rotation period. Like. Right? Um, Now, we do know that any neutron star that's not pointed at us, we never see, by definition, because it's not pointed at us. So we have to assume that there's something like maybe five times as many neutron stars as we know about that are sitting spinning that we don't know about. We cannot measure their rotation rate because they're not pointing at us. But since we have no particular reason to think that the ones we see are different, that's fine, if you know what I mean. you know We're just seeing some random 20% of all the neutron stars, oh, so right, yeah, out. that's I'm,
0: right. I'm, I'm, I'm just if there's this. like a way, someone's probably doing this research or done this research, where if you have, if you can work out the um, the radius of the neutron star just from um, observation, or well, maybe, maybe you're doing the, the distance measurements, then you can determine how big it is actually. So we talked about three kilometer radius. Yeah. Even if it's non-rotating, you can work out by the conservation of angular momentum, maybe that say, for example, the neutron star is five kilometers, That means that the star that it was from previously must have been a certain mass, and then we can just use the two masses and the respective radii and calculate the rotation rate. That's probably not possible, but that's... If they're not emitting light,
1: so yeah. I mean, the point is that's all that'll give you is an order of magnitude type of thing, hand wavy thing. I'm very good at hand waving. I call it my astrophysical interpretive dance. Right. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so yes, we can we can do that. But the other thing we have to remember is that the um, annoying thing about these binary systems that I'm talking about is because we've got matter that's actually being transferred between the two stars. They're exchanging angular momentum like mad. So um, so in fact. Our neutron That's right. It's, it's our neutron Subject star. To that's right, and not only the mass, but the angular momentum, which means its spin rate. So yeah. in fact, these things tend to spin up as they as they accrete gas from the right. companion. So, so, it's so not just
0: two definitive time points where all the a star. Now exactly. It's a star. That's the right. Mass is
1: variable the, the mass power. is variable. The Spin yeah. is variable. Everything's variable. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So, that's so, and that's where the detective story comes in. <laughs> so. Yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> exciting to
0: even think about. Like I I can picture myself trying to come up with ways. to yeah. Think about it. So. Yeah. Before we run out of time, because we, wow, <laughs> nearly 40 minutes already. <laughs> Oops, already...
1: you're going to have to trim this down a bit. Yeah, it's ridiculous
0: how quickly it goes. Honestly, you can end up, it's the one thing about physics, you can just talk for hours, That's but funny. whatever. Um, so I would quickly like to touch on um, quantum mechanics, yep. just because um, Helen did teach me in, um, in I think it was module three of first year physics. Yep. Um, and I remember asking, asking her a question in the, in the lecture hall. And because we were discussing like photons and the wave function and discussing how the photon is a particle, but it's not a particle. And then I was like, I know, I was at the end of the lecture, what, what is, what is a photon? And then you were like, we, we don't know. <laughs> and I was like, ultimately unsatisfied when I went home, but th- that, that is the reality. Yeah. So that idea of that particle and oh, wave kind of simultaneous existence. Dr. Carl, so, so loud. <laughs> um, so that idea of particle and wave nature interchangeability yeah. kind of stem from the, the theories established by, well, firstly established by Einstein and then expanded upon by de Broglie, yeah. who said that this wavelength and well, you can relate physical properties of matter to its associated wavelength.
1: Yeah.
0: How is that? What does, you, you know what I mean? How, yeah. how can we interpret well, that?
1: One of the things that really interests me is I've been doing a whole bunch of reading. I've, I've just been getting into reading, uh, you know, um, biographies, particularly of the people who were doing this work. And I could, again, I could talk for hours about some of these fantastic people. Who, 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 um, and I'm not talking the the the, the ordinary. People. I'm, I'm interested in like the early astronomers, the people who worked out. Um, that stars were made of hydrogen. Do you know what I mean? And it's all, all based right. on. And it's it's astonishing to work out from to realize how tightly they were embedded in the quantum stuff that was going on. You know, the buzz that was going around in the 1910s and 1920s, and everybody knew about all these weird theories that people were coming up with. And but what really gets me is is the more I read, the more you realize that. Even the people who were doing this work didn't really believe it. It's some funny way, you know what I mean? There's some yeah. funny way, you know. Einstein comes along and says light is a particle, and everyone goes, "Nah, you're kidding, right? Not really." I mean, you know, and then they, you know, and then it works to explain some stuff, and they go, "Well, okay, yeah, but not really." <laughs> you know? And so, you know, even like end of the 1920s, the time where we're all familiar with, you know, people like Planck, who was the person who basically invented. The thing that led to the development of the photon model he didn't actually think light was a particle he just thought it was a mathematical trick that kind of worked but was clearly just obscuring the deeper wave nature of you know what i mean it's like um i actually have trouble finding books that are written that are telling me what i want to know it's like the way books about quantum history tend to be the the really generalist rah rah let's talk about schrodinger's cat right you know um or they're highly mathematical stuff that just assume that quantum theory is true i want to know how you get from one to the other you know what I mean? What was it actually like to be working on this stuff what were you thinking you know what i mean um you know when de Broglie says let's assume there's a wavelength did he believe it or did he just kind of think well this is a fun game ha 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 you know what i mean it's like um yeah it's this obviously was the buzz that was going around. Everyone just kind of saying, "Look, we it feels like we can think of anything we like," and it turns out to be true. Do you know what I mean? It must have been such an astonishing time to be doing science. Um, but yeah, and so, like I say, I'm trying to I, I'm I'm trying to get into the heads of these people to 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 realize what it was like. You know, what was it like to be these early spectro- spectroscopists who hadn't yet worked out that like there was such a thing as an ionized gas? Do you know what I mean? You know, you they they talk about Uh, the extraordinary lines of helium, which is now what we call ionized helium. Do you know what I mean? But they just thought of it as helium and then extraordinary helium. It's like, you know, what was your model? What did you think was going on? You know what I mean? Um, The people who were doing radioactivity and you knew that radium did something and it left a new substance behind, but you didn't know what it was. You didn't really know it was a new element yet. You just called it radium two and radium three and radium four. You know, you didn't... It's like so much stuff that, we, that's right, we think of as like early high school physics and it just, you know, well, obviously it's true, but it wasn't obvious. And that's that's so fascinating that this, this yeah, and like I say, I'd love to, yeah, get a better grasp of, yeah, really channel. That's right, what, what, it, what it must have felt like. And then after all those years of confusion, when someone comes up and says, yeah, we've actually got transmutation, it really is you know transforming from plutonium to uranium and it's like wow you know what i mean it's like you know yeah. that's a, that's right yeah so so yeah I, it's 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 really interesting and it's very hard to see from this vantage point yeah. to get back into that mindset and unfortunately in physics we do tend to have a sort of triumphalist view of how physics um, progressed you know we had the, the you know the bad model, this, and then a better model came along and then Einstein came along and saved us all. Do you know what I mean? I think what we need to get across is yeah, that yeah. actually people thought Einstein was just weird for a long time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah so Another, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's easy
0: now to think about like De Broglie and be like, oh, well, okay, well, given the, the data <laughs> that was there, yeah, okay, Einstein wasn't sure and they weren't, and mm-hmm. the classical like Huygen interpretation of the wave was that there were these kind of, Wave fronts that gave rise to secondary wavelets that, yeah. that were synonymous with the primary wave. Yeah. And then Einstein comes out with, no, it's a particle. <laughs> so then you go, oh, okay, well then maybe it's both. But to actually do that at the time yeah. is a huge step to say that every physical thing that we see is actually also a wave. Everyone would just be like.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, so yeah.
0: It is really remarkable. And that leads the way to, um, Ideas like quantum tunneling, which is the last thing we'll we'll speak about today because (laughs) (laughs) we know it's going to be three o'clock. And and quantum tunneling is this idea that we learned about in uh, the quantum mechanics module that that Helen taught. And um, it pretty much says that quantum particles, so a quantum particle, a classic quantum particle is an electron or, or a um, or a photon, they they classic quantum particles. It says that because they actually exist in this superposition of the wave and the particle um, that we just spoke about, um, they can actually move, let me get this right, they can move through what's called a potential barrier, where classically if you had a particle, like an electron, um, maybe positioned on the left of a, Of a little hill that's say X high, if the particle didn't have that potential energy to be able to get up over that hill and to to the side, it would never you'd never see it on the other side of the hill. But we're saying that even if a particle doesn't have the sufficient energy to overcome the potential barrier, it can still be detected on the other side of this barrier. Would you be able to expand upon that and then like? Related to how you did in the lectures, which is awesome, because I was so when you are saying it, I was like, "What? This is amazing." Well,
1: I think this is the really classic thing that that we talk, you know, about how confusing this stuff is, and you know, people don't believe it actually happens. But when it, when it you can actually measure that it does happen, do you know what I mean? That's when you kind of have to say, "Well." Me being confused has no effect on the universe. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And so, as you say, we can actually do the calculation that shows if quantum tunnelling is not true, then stars would not shine, right? Stars only shine because basically the, the fact that stars shine is evidence that quantum tunnelling does happen, you know, that, that, that if it were not for that, then um, stars would have to be, you know, on the order of a thousand times hotter in the middle than they actually are just so the particles had enough energy to get over that potential barrier. They don't. And, right, and, and you know, we every model we have says that we know how hot the stars are in the middle. Therefore, they have to be doing this weird tunneling, right? That they you've got this wave that exists on, on one side of the barrier. And because that wave can um, has some sort of ghostly, what we call evanescent presence within the barrier, it can probabilistically... Sometimes appear on the other side of the barrier, and as I say, and the fact that 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 stars actually have f- fusion going on yeah, in the middle is. is, in some sense, the evidence. And as I, as I as I like to say, so in some sense, you just have to put your confusion aside. I, I like to describe myself as I'm just a simple astronomer. I know that stars shine, so yeah. it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. It, it must be actually true. And so yes, um, you know, some people want to think about the 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 deep meaning of what. Wave-particle duality means, and I just go, it happens. <laughs> I'm <to> answer. So, <laughs> difficult to find. Yes. but In this
0: case, the potential barrier is the um, uh, the cool and repulsive force between right. two particles. Yes. Um, we spoke about like fusion reactions where you have um, hydrogen and hydrogen two identical um, atoms coming into interaction with each with each other, and the the hydrogen is ionized in the core because it's so hot so yes they're positively charged particles coming together. that's right yes and to force two positive charges or even if your science um, knowledge is not that great you know that positive charges repel so they'll naturally push against each other and you're saying that the temperature of the stars is insufficient for them to have enough energy for this spontaneous collision exactly so (laughs) they need to have this and need to be able to go through the potential barrier by that's this right. tunneling
1: exactly they get they get close but not actually touching and there's some small chance that they'll actually fall together even though they're being repelled by the, by by the two positive charges and it's like yep <laughs> so
0: the whole the whole establishment of life on earth is sustained by these processes exactly. occurring in the core of stars yes. yep that's just <laughs> unbelievable to think about. And for me, if I never got into physics, I would never have known that. Yeah. And yeah, okay, it, it doesn't change my life now <laughs> that I know it. But it gives me like an appreciation for the things that are going on. Yeah, there of... are
1: there are just things that that you should just sit down and contemplate occasionally and go, yeah. huh, that's right, all of us depend on this one little fact that might not be understandable. But yeah, it's there
0: so many little little underlying (laughs) facts which rationalize our entire existence which is remarkable so we've just hit 50 minutes so that's more than we planned on talking for for sure but i've got another half a page of content here to speak about but i think that we read maybe book ourselves in for a part two okay if if (laughs) helen will have us back and of course if you have any questions um the next one I said with um, Professor Tim Berning that if we come back, it'd be more like a Q and A. So if you have any questions about um, Helen's research, or you'd like her to answer some astro- astronomy questions, um, send them through to the email, which is in the description, and we can. The next one can be a Q and A, maybe, and and some other topics that I want to talk about. For example, to give a teaser, um, I want to talk about um, potentially this new experiment, which may have. Um, found a new force in physics but that's just a teaser that we may link that up with a theoretical physicist or something that's what helen suggested um uh, so send the emails through um if if you have any questions but thanks so much for taking time out of your day thank you it was, great. it was good it was good fun <laughs> Zahasha, thank you for being is yeah. <laughs> a medical student so he doesn't have the association with with the physics of, that me and helen have um but it's great to have him here to support um so thanks for listening uh be sure to follow on on whatever platform you're uh, you're uh, listening on and send out send us your questions for the next time so that's all
1: that's all for the world around us oh yeah
0: (laughs) thank you for listening to the world around us see you next time